Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Noah Irvine, a mental health advocate and now an author. In his first book, Learning to Live, From the Loss of My Parents to Mental Health Advocate, Noah writes his memoirs. It might seem a bit weird for a 21-year-old kid from Guelph to put down his life story for posterity, but if you know Noah's story, then you will understand that it is as remarkable as it is recognizable. It's a story of tragedy and triumph, a story of pain and perseverance, and it's a story that's unfolding in many corners across Canada, silently, anonymously, and sometimes without the hero coming out quite so well-adjusted in the end. This is Noah's story, and it's the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. You've probably heard about Noah. He's been featured in a lot of different local and national media outlets from his letter-writing campaign demanding better mental health supports. Noah's last round of letters went out last year, in the midst of the third wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, at a point when we knew with certainty that there was going to be some long-term effects on mental health for people across Canada, which were caused by the lockdowns and the isolation and the various issues therein. For Noah, mental health has always been front of mind, though, so to speak. His mother died by suicide when he was five, and his father overdosed when he was 15. As you learn in his book, even in Noah's school bereavement group, he was a unique case, being the only kid there to lose both of his parents, and he lost both of them before he was old enough to even drive a car. Learning to live is aptly named. Noah chronicles the struggle of his youth and how his personal tragedy made him feel different and maybe a little outcast from other kids, how he found it difficult to make friends because he felt like the other kids just wouldn't get him. He questions how he remembers the things he remembers and whether those memories are real. He carries around guilt for what happened to his parents, even while realizing how irrational those thoughts are. And Noah has also struggled with his own issues, a learning disability that might have kept him from pursuing a post-secondary education. And he's always encountering people who know his life story firsthand and have marveled to his face about how well-adjusted he is. Noah will tell you, that he had a lot of support from his grandparents, from teachers, and from the various people in his community. But he will also tell you that he's one of the lucky ones. The fine line between lucky and unlucky is what learning to live is all about. And it's also about why the unlucky ones, like Noah's parents, don't deserve to be forgotten. Or treated as a statistic, for that matter. So Noah Irvine joins us on this edition of the Guelph Politicast to talk about luck why he wanted to write his life story down in a book, and the everyday struggles of being a survivor and trying to relate. He will also talk about his efforts to try and understand his parents and their issues now that they're not around, how Noah faced and overcame barriers of his own, and how his now-famous letter-writing campaign, which started as a school project, helped him overcome. And finally, Noah will tell us about the limits of political action, why he's leaning towards a career in law, and what he hopes all readers get out of his very compelling and very complicated life story. So I caught up with Noah Irvine last week via Zoom. Okay, Noah Irvine, thank you so much for hopping on with me today. Thanks, Adam. So we're here to talk about your book, Learning to Live, which people can't see the cover of it as I'm talking, but um, a very pleasant-looking young man on the front uh, with his faithful yet oddly named dog norman um <laughs> it, it it sort of uh sort of belies sort of the 
you know, the difficult subject matter inside. But to, to start off with, uh, I've always been told youths don't don't do books anymore. Uh, the young people are doing the TikToks now. That's that's how we communicate. So um, so why a book? Why was writing a book important to you? Um, yeah, well, thanks uh, for uh, for introducing the book and, and for reading it. Um, why a book? Um, I think that uh, for me, reading, uh, education have been uh, hugely beneficial and important to me. And uh, I, I've been a pretty avid reader since probably about grade 11, um, inspired by a number of my teachers at uh, GCBI, specifically in the history department. And uh, I wanted to uh, to write this uh, because I think it's, uh, there's just something about having a, a book uh, of your life story um, in, a, in a hard copy form that just, I don't know, there's something uh, very intimate about reading. Um, and uh, there's there's just something about, the act of actually reading something that I, that I feel uh, we need to get back into a little bit more. And um, for me, uh, I've read, like I said, very avidly, probably since about grade 11, uh, so about from 17 till now. So um, I've, uh, yeah, I've just really felt it necessary. And uh, I'm glad I did it. I, I did it through a lot of peer pressure, though. I'll be very honest. Uh, there are a lot of people in my life that uh, pushed me into writing this. Um, but uh, you know, writing, writing a book and being able to hand somebody your story, I think is also kind of a unique component to that. Seeing it written sort of down on the page and trying to remember all the details. Um, were, were there any surprises for you? And like when, when, when it was done, or maybe when you had a first draft and you're looking back and you're like, uh, I don't know, maybe you remember more than you think, or I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> yeah. I think when, when I finally got the book done, because I wrote it in a month. Um, so then when I actually was able to look back at it and go through it and start the initial process of, okay, where does it go from here? Yeah, I think it was uh, in some ways a, a bit of a surprise to see how much I've, I've gone through in 21 years of life. I mean, I was 21 when I wrote it. So I think the act of going back and seeing that, I think, was, was a little bit shocking. Uh, to be honest, there's there's a significant amount of life that I have lived in the in the 21 years, and uh, compressed a, a lot of um, yeah, compressed uh, quite a lot of um, maturity, uh, adult like topics, uh, in a very short span of my of my life. And I think to see that and to to be able to hold that in your hand is it, it was a bit uh, definitely a bit uh, surprising. Hmm. Well, I do want to get into the book a bit. And um, by all means, if uh, if you want to take a moment, let me know, because it is the, the material is heavy. But one of the places I want to start is you talk a lot about having trouble identifying with people your own age. And, you know, th there was a line in the book where you say, uh, I never read Harry Potter, but I've read uh, the Romeo Dallaire book uh, waiting for uh waiting for first light. And uh, I mean, that's heavy, that's heavy material for sure. Um, let's start there. You know, how, how, how different do you, I mean, it, you know, did you feel growing up, you know, being a kid, looking like a kid, probably being treated like a kid quite a bit, but I mean, because of the, 
the course of your life, um, you, you didn't feel like a kid. Yeah, I'm going to steal a line from my uh, from my neighbor, uh, Brian. Uh, they just moved in uh, from Toronto and, and have only known me for about a year. Uh, so obviously have missed quite a lot of, of uh, the book. But Brian said to me, he said, Noah, you remind me uh, of an old soul trapped in a young man's body. And I think Brian really epitomized what I tried to say through that uh, section of the book that you're that you're citing. Um, even as a even as a kid, I mean, my ability to connect with adults was so much greater than my peers, and that's not to knock my peers or anything. That's just a statement of fact. It was just much easier for me to connect and uh, and uh, speak to uh, adults who I did feel, in many ways, were my peers um, uh, in terms of their maturity. Um, with regard to the section that you're that you're talking about with the Harry Potter and uh, Romeo Dallaire uh, comparison, there, uh, it's it's very true. I have I have read and consumed very uh, mature, heavy uh, books uh, since I was a uh, since I was in uh, early part of high school into mid high school. Uh, I've read Shake Hands with the Devil, uh, Romeo's uh, first uh, first book, but I've read you know David Johnson's Letter to a, a Nation, which isn't heavy, but it is mature. It's it's definitely an unusual thing for a. I think I was about eighteen at the time I read it, mm-hmm. um, but but that uh, I think going back to what Brian said, I think that the the choice of reading for me uh, really speaks to that comment of his that that uh, old soul trapped in a young body comment that he made. Uh, and I never really had thought about it like that, but in many ways, the the, the section you're referring to, uh, Brian really uh, epitomized that with his with his statement uh, to me. Now, I don't know if I answered your question, um, <laughs> but I did ramble a bit, so uh, that's I'll, okay. let you, I'll let you ask uh, another one there. All right, because I mean it's hard enough as a kid, and there was also a portion that um, you said. You, you looked at sort of the other kids who would like get mad at their mom and dad and you would, you know, you would recognize that this is another thing, how you were different from the other kids. You would recognize, you know, well, you're lucky you have a mom and dad to get, uh, mad, at, yeah. to get mad at. Yeah. And then th- there's this portion later on where you're in high school and there's um, I-, I do want to know the origin of the name, but the soup club yes. um, <laughs> with, with, you know, 20 other uh, kids your own age who have also lost parents and a lot of them um, lost a parent to you know essentially natural causes things like cancer and even then you still feel like an outlier where you have this one thing in common with uh, at least the, this select group of of your peers but you still feel like an outlier because they don't know what it's like to lose your parent lose one parent to an overdose and lose another parent to uh, to suicide so I mean is it ever, I guess for someone like you, who has like this very unique particular set of circumstances, I mean, how can you ever feel sort of comfortable sharing your story? And you talk a lot about that difficulty in the book, but I mean, even in situations where it should be possible for you to share more, it seems like you are still sort of limited because no one else has your exact sort of set of life experiences. Yeah. You know, so I'll touch on the name. Yeah. why it's called soup club um we had um our school chef um tekken gerlach uh he would prepare soup for us uh-huh. uh, at lunch because it was over our lunch period and he also lost uh 
one of his parents uh, at the age of 19. So he connected um, along with uh, his name's Jerry in the book, but with uh, Gerard Guthrow and both of them really set this up. Uh, Tekken supplied the soup and Gerard kind of helped facilitate the uh, the meeting and the dialogue with this. But you are right. Um, soup Club for me was great to have and it did benefit some of my buddies who I still connect with today. But even those buddies who have lost their dads will say to me, we don't totally know what to say to you because it is totally a unique story. I mean, I've talked to uh, many people and this story is maybe slightly more common to be found on reserve. Mm. Um, But in Southern Southwestern Ontario, it's a very abnormal situation. Um, That's an unfortunate reality that it's a little bit more common, probably on reserves. Um, But for me living in Southern Southwestern Ontario, uh, you're right. Even in places where I technically should have been able to quote unquote fit in, there were still some of those awkward moments where I have buddies who have lost fathers saying, man, we really don't know what to say because it's, you know, we can only understand or empathize with half of what you've gone through. So, right, right, right. Do you still feel like you have trouble, you know, sort of fitting in? Do you still feel like you, maybe you should put up like a, a viewer discretion notice when you, you're talking to new people who maybe don't know your story? <laughs> well, with regard to the, to the idea of fitting in, um, yeah, that's absolutely there. Um, you know, especially as I've gone through university, um, yeah, that idea is definitely still there. Um, there's no, there's no question that I'll probably always feel it a bit. Um, because the natural question when you meet somebody new is, well, tell me about your life. Mm -hmm. Where have you, where have you come from? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a pretty, uh, innocent question, but it's a pretty, uh, it's a question for me that can net some very different uh, answers depending on the way I want to approach this. Um, so with regard to fitting in currently today, uh, I'm probably better, you know, as my friends have matured, um, they're more on par with me, I guess I could say. Um, but that'll always, that'll always be there. That somewhat awkward, how much to share and how much not to. Right. Are the young, are, I guess people maybe generally more sensitive to this because since you know you started your advocacy it has been top of mind more um we we are currently in a as we're recording this we're in an election period where every major party has a mental health platform and you know you may think it doesn't go far enough i'm not trying to put words in your mouth but you know just the factor of like i guess the the way we are currently living and and how omnipresent the issue is does that has that made things easier too? like it knowing that there's I guess I guess there are more of you out there, even if you are not encountering them every day. Yeah, I think to, to your question um, with with COVID, um, there is definitely more of a willingness to talk about mental health. There's definitely more of a willingness to say, you know what, I, I really struggled through this. You know, it really sucked as a social being to be away from society like it was hard. And there are people that I would have never expect, you know, to, to have openly admitted that. Um, so this has touched more people that I know personally, but also that then segues into me 
being able to talk a little bit more about, you know, some of my uh, struggles with mental health and, and, and also bringing up mom and dad a little bit more through those conversations. So to your question, COVID definitely, I think has changed the conversation. I hope that it's not going to fade away into the background and that this won't be a blip uh, of conversation of a willingness to talk. I hope this is uh, fundamentally changed our willingness to speak on this in a very casual, open uh, setting. But um, yeah, I, I would say that COVID has really altered the ability for people to speak on this because I think everybody knows either themselves or somebody now that has struggled uh, through this. And also our ability to understand because there was one particular line I, I, I t- made a note of um, your mother talking to her sister saying that I wish I had cancer so people could understand Um, because, you know, in in so much as everyone has sort of unique mental health issues that are unique to them, um, try explaining that to even a mental health professional. And there was, and again, not to to jump around between the book, but there was also uh, after your, your dad died when you're in high school, one of the counselors, so people who should be trained to know better says to you, are you sure he didn't die by suicide instead of dying by an overdose? So, I mean, does it feel like to to get back to what your mother said, you know, maybe there is more understanding now. Maybe this isn't like you have to think in, in you're lucky you have cancer because you can, you can explain cancer. We we have a kind of base understanding of uh, we all do of, of mental health issues now. Yeah, I think we have that. We're we're getting better at that base understanding. I would say for her though, and in the context of that that quote that you've that you've uh, connected with there, um, with her mental illness, borderline personality disorder, it's great that we have a surface level understanding. But there's a lot of illnesses like schizophrenia, like borderline personality disorder, or addiction more broadly that I think people really still struggle with understanding it. And that's okay. Right. We're, we're going to get there at some point, but I would say to your question, yes, we're, we're much better at that base level of understanding that base level of conversation, but I'd say we are still struggling with understanding some of the more nitty gritty, so to speak of, of those illnesses. I, I don't think they're on par with something like cancer or Alzheimer's or, right. uh, or, or take your pick for a physical illness. I don't think they're on par there yet. I think we're going to get there. Uh, I think COVID though has definitely given that base level of understanding. Right. Because uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember where the quote came from, but talking about your, your mother's mental illness, there were high levels of happiness, but there were also huge pits of despair. And yeah. You know, these things, I think, unless you kind of experience them, people don't, I mean, people understand how you can be happy one minute and sad the next or angry the next. But I don't think people get like how high the mountains go and how deep the valleys go when you have this particular um, illness. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of my first memories is of her just tearing, uh, crying in the middle of the hallway. Uh, or another memory is her getting incredibly jealous of of her her own sister when there was mm-hmm. no when there was no need to, and spewing vitriol was part of this. And again, it's not her fault, but it's an illness that is incredibly complicated. Um, and I think to your first question, um, we are getting better 
at having that base level conversation, but we have mountains to ascend before we start really understanding what the nuances of an illness are, what those in and outs actually represent. We've, we've still got a lot of ways to go there. Mm -hmm. In talking about your father, um, you actually were able to put a number on, on the number of times you, you had interactions with him, yep. 154, which, you know, lined up end to end is like once, you know, almost once a day for two and two thirds years. Yep. I, I do, I'm not sure I have a question, but it's just, you know, that, that can't be good for one's own sort of in so much as you're trying to understand, right. I wonder if you're not indulging in a bit of like self-punishment, like kind of rigorously trying to, you know, order these relationships you had with, with your parents who are unfortunately no longer here, but by trying to quantify that by, by looking back and saying there were, I was with my dad only 154 times. Like are is, is I hate to say it, but is, is that healthy or is that part of your process? So why I wanted to put a number on it was I wanted people to understand the sacrifice I had to make in not seeing him, mm. the sacrifice that had to be made in order to preserve my own well-being and safety. And I want people to understand that that number exists for a lot of children, but also I want people to understand that I had the option to get out of that. Mm -hmm. I had the option to not see him. Right. There are many children sitting in public education and classrooms across the province and across the country who do not have the ability to distance themselves from their parents' mental illness. I believe I talk about that in that particular chapter that, that I had a way out. Yeah. The 154 days, I also want to stun people. I'll be honest. I want people to be stunned by that. Uh, that's my father that I, that I saw for very limited amounts of time. And I want people to understand that that is, that is the reality of this. That's the reality of my life. That's the reality of my relationship with my father and his mental illness. And uh, in terms of um, looking down on that number, I used to a little bit, sure. But I think now what I see in that is at least I got 154 days with him. And um, I think that's another positive of that, even though it's a, it's a, it's a very small positive in and amongst the dark things of my relationship with him. But at least I got that because there's a lot of kids who don't. And for me, I didn't get that for my mom. So I wanted to put that in there for a number of reasons. And I would also say you, you got a chance to sort of talk to him man to man, although you were like 14, 15 at the time. But, yep. you, you know, you talk about how you were the one with your grandparents' assistance uh, as well to, to sort of push him to try and, and get help for his um, his problems. Um, so, I mean, I mean, that's a bit different from your mom who, you know, you were five when she she died. So, I mean, a certain amount of powerlessness, but, you know, does it, does it, I don't know, does it help that you were able to be at a point in sort of your development where you were able to, you know, strongly articulate to your father, your feelings and, and how you wanted him to get better? Does, is, is, does that help your healing? You know, uh, it didn't uh, <laughs> for a little bit. Um, 
you know, and I'll be honest with that. Um, it didn't for a little bit because I did in some ways blame myself for asking him to go to rehab. Right. Nowadays, I think it was the right decision to make. Um, one of the, one of the bright spots in that, uh, with him going was that he got to have, um, a day pass from his rehab hospital in Toronto and see some of his old high school buddies, buddies that had not seen him in a clear state of mind for decades. And they were able to see him. They were able to take him on the streetcar, take him out to lunch. And um, he was kind of back. And I think that getting him there, him dying so soon after, the day after he got out, you know, I, I beat myself up over that for a long time. But knowing the bright spots that came from it, that he got that, you know, those final moments with his, with his good buddies that had been there throughout his life, but also made amends with his, his own mom and dad the night he got back. Mm. Um, so, well, um, I did struggle with sending him to rehab. Quite honestly, he could have died through COVID. He had Crohn's disease. He could have died through COVID. I mean, the yeah. what ifs don't help. It happened. Oh. It's, it's done and decisions were made. And I think looking back on them now at 22, yeah, I'd say they were the right decisions to make. It's, it's funny to me, um, listening to, to you be able to, to talk about it so clearly and, and so rationally, but I mean, that's kind of what the, the book is about is, um, is, is how you struggled through how, and also, and you were very clear about this, how you had the support yes. where other, uh, you know, other young people are not so lucky. And I want to address this. I mean, it almost comes off like a joke in the book. And I don't know if that was how it was <laughs> intended, but whenever you encounter people who knew you when you were younger, you know, maybe when your mom was alive and struggling and, or maybe, you know, you through your dad and knows your, how your dad struggled. But when people say to you, gee, Noah, you look great. I can't believe how well you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just that's how, how does that feel? <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of both. I guess it's a, it's a bit of both. It's nice to hear, but also you, you, you kind of know in the back of their head, the bar was pretty low um, <laughs> in terms of uh, maybe what they, what they thought um, was going to happen to me. But you know, as, as I say that they're also not wrong. Um mm a lot of folks who end up in drug rehab, alcohol treatment, um, but also mental health treatment or dead or in jail are, they've had stories like mine Mm -hmm. Um, and they've had past experiences like mine. So, well, there's a bit of, okay, I guess the bar was pretty low in terms of, you know, I'm still here. There's also another part of that where it's, uh, where it's, it's clear that, um, I was one of the few that maybe did actually make it, right. um, because I think there's a lot of people that, uh, that do not make it. And I touch on that with, with quotes from coppers and, uh, and some teachers who openly acknowledge that, that, you know, this doesn't typically end this well, and, uh, it's been hard, no question about it, but it's ended pretty well, all things considering. I did want to pull on, on that thread about um, you, you talk in one scene about how you, you were feeling low one night and end up ended up on the phone with the police yeah. and you ended up having like 
as you describe, like a really kind of healthy conversation that maybe pulled you back from whatever darkness, you know, you, you found yourself falling in. And it made me think about a lot of the conversations we've had about, you know, should police be involved in mental health? And I mean, you, you, you can, you can probably see this from a unique both sides perspective in, in, in you had a dark moment, you were able to reach out to police and they helped you. Um, so, I mean, is there, I guess a broader lesson to be, to be learned from your example, or is, is that just sort of, maybe you were just lucky that one time you got a, a police officer who was understanding. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's, you can always chalk anything up to luck. What I'll say <laughs> though is, cause it's a good question, Adam. And, and it's one that I've never really been asked before. Um, obviously nobody really knew this until I, I wrote it, mm-hmm. but it's a good question based on the fact that I can see both sides. Um, I didn't need a shrink to talk mm. to me and mm. I, and I'll, I'll be, I'll use the non-politically correct term, uh, with the term shrink. Um, mm. I didn't need a psychologist or a social worker to, to talk with me. I needed somebody real. I needed somebody who would talk to me one-on-one like a human being and not a, a, mental health case. I just needed to talk to somebody and actually have a one-on-one. There are some people who need those psychological services. There are. There are times when police are ill-suited to respond to mental health. That's right. That's, that's, you know, that's just a fact. However, what I will say though, is I think people have looked at this far too black and white with regard to police responding to mental health calls. Police will always and should always respond to a mental health call because you don't know what that person is capable of doing. Right. Most oftentimes, those who are mentally ill and who are struggling are not at risk to others around them. In many ways, those who are mentally ill are typically harmed more and are injured more and they face the repercussions of their mental illness more so than them putting it on to uh, others in terms of harm. But you're always going to have police that respond. You're always going to have that. There's no question about it. But what I think it did for me was it, without Ian, that's the copper's name, mm-hmm. uh, Guelph, Guelph Police Service member, without Ian talking to me, I may not be here today. Because again, what I needed was was a friend. I didn't need to be treated as a patient. I needed to be treated as an equal, a co-equal. Um, I'm not going to talk about Ian's story, but he shared some personal things with me. And, and we, again, had a conversation as friends, as peers, as one-on-one. And I think there's people that need that. There's also the other side where people need the crisis worker. They need that social worker. They need that counselor. They need that immediate intervention. But to your back to your initial part of this, I don't ever see, and I would hope we do not get to a point where police are removed as a part of the equation because they will always be a part of the equation to mm-hmm. a response to mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not is it whether or not it's within crisis situations or it's within what they see, but they're always going to be a part of the mental health conversation. Um, But I'm not an expert into what's going to happen, but I would say that 
there's got to be a bit more of a balancing act. I think sometimes society is very quick to go and swing the pendulum. Right. And we've, we forget that there is a bit of a middle ground here. We don't have to swing it to one side or the other. We can find our way in the middle. And it's the same position I would take with school resource officers, school resource officers for me in public school were fantastic resources to have for me to just talk with again, mm-hmm. people who see my mom and dad every day, uh, it's nice to sometimes talk with them about um, what I'm feeling. And they see kids like me. They respond to those kids. Um, they see the family dynamic that I was faced with. And to have them in the school accessible was important to me. And it's, I think it was a mistake to remove them from high schools. It wasn't your question, but I wanted to touch on that. <laughs> sure, though. sure, sure. Uh, I, I think there is something to say about... Um you know, from the police officer's perspective, uh, talking about seeing kids like you, um, there's, it's probably in the back of the mind of a lot of police officers if they get called to a, a domestic situation and there are kids there. Um, yep. Even if it's just a stray thought for a minute, it's like, well, I wonder how long it is until I see this kid in a yep. professional context. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, police will always be a part of our society. The criminal justice system will always be a part of our society and mental health will always be a part of society. And we need to figure out a way to engage it rather than shutting out one or the other, mm-hmm. because it doesn't work. Uh, that, that swinging of the pendulum doesn't work. We need to find the middle ground. So I think to your question, I, I think I, I humanize that conversation a bit in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like a good segue to talk about um, your letter writing campaign, which uh, started out as a class project. Um, also, strangely enough, was sort of like the the cider to you pursuing a university career. Can you talk absolutely. A bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Without without two members of staff at my high school, Sandy Zond and Gerard Guthrow, um, I, I probably wouldn't be in university. But without writing those letters and without starting my advocacy. Uh, work, I most definitely would not be in university today. Um, There's no question in my mind that the way that I was looking at this at 17 was that I would not be going to post-secondary at all. Uh, And my two teachers that I mentioned and my advocacy uh, path fundamentally changed the the course and direction of of my life and and in my post-secondary pursuit of my degree. So. I'm trying to think of how to delicately put this, but uh, you, you talk about the letter writing campaign and you know how it kind of escalated from you thought you were going to write these letters, you're going to get a great reaction, and it turns out that um, letters aren't as effective as people might think. So you, you went to calling people. Um, you and your your grandfather got in touch with Ken Armstrong from Guelph Today, and yep. that uh, that story got a lot of traction. One of the things that struck me, though, is you're talking a lot about how you had conversations with cabinet ministers, MPs, the prime minister himself, talking about how, oh, yes, absolutely, we're making mental health a priority. But you would get the letters back and the letters themselves would kind of be all over the place. And so in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, if if it's a priority, shouldn't they all have the same message? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess yeah. I just I mean, when we kind of hear the platitudes, I mean, you you went into this from a very sort of, let's say, new, polit- new 
new politics perspective or you were new to the political um let's call it game for lack of a better word but yep. you know but you get these responses back that maybe let, lets you look through the keyhole and see that you know maybe the government's saying one thing and and doing something else and at, at what point you know at, at what point did you sort of feel dissatisfied by that i'm gonna completely segue from your question <laughs> okay. with this answer i think <laughs> I was asked by the prime minister's office if our MPs get it, mm. uh, meaning liberal MPs at that time uh, in 2017. Mm-hmm. My response was no. And my response was, it is very easy to arrest those who are in your way in front of your constituency office, screaming, yelling, intimidating staff. It's incredibly easy to call the cops and get them arrested for uh, and, and charged for um Uh, for any number of criminal code violations. It's very easy to do that. What is harder to do is to have ongoing conversations, to have ongoing conversations that lead to understanding, that lead to compassion, and that lead to a willingness to create effective strategies. It's also really easy to stand up in front of a podium Mm -hmm. and announce you're going to spend $6 billion as a government over 10 years. That's really easy. What's really hard is to sit down, write a letter to a 15-year-old at the time who lost his, his dad and, and his mom, and actually be compassionate about something that you may not totally care about, but your government does. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, what I learned, is mm-hmm. that the government can put a banner on how much they care. It doesn't mean everybody in that government actually really does care. And I think that's what I really learned. And yes, I was naive when I was a kid. Um, I was definitely naive. I was trying not to say naive. No, that's okay. (laughs) Because I, I, and I'll be the first to admit it. Yes, I was naive. Um, And that's totally okay to say. I mean, I was 17 and and I wanted to make a difference. And it's okay to to look back and say, yeah, I was naive. But I think um, from that naive position that I started at when I was 17 till now, uh, I've been told by a number of folks in town, but also across the country, I did change some minds. Whether mm-hmm. or not I changed legislation, that'll be for somebody else to debate and talk about. That's not my prerogative to talk about that. But right. you know, Mike, Mike Schreiner, Cam Guthrie, you know, local guys in town, they've said that I, like Mike told me, the reason why the Green Party platform includes a ministry is because of me. Mike did not support that before talking to me. Uh, letters were great. I'll be the first to say I would do it all over again. Uh, But the follow-up was even better. The conversations, Mm -hmm. the ongoing conversations, the changing of the hearts and minds, the changing of, is this the right solution for not only this community, not only this province, but this country? Is this the right way forward? Letters were great at starting those conversations. But yes, I was naive to think that my letters were going to change the world. But I think they were the starting point of me getting some movement on some change. I think that's the best way to say that. No, no. I, and I, the other thing I noted with that is you, you, you explicitly say that you got better responses from the Lieutenant governors and the senators, like the people who to be brutally honest, don't have to cater to the, to the voting public and don't have to worry. You know, one would think, you know, getting your picture taken with the young 15 year old, 16 year old advocate for mental health, uh, that looks pretty good in a you know a, a mailer or, or or on Facebook or whatever you want to do, but 
you know, a senator doesn't have to worry about pleasing constituents or look like he's or she is is uh, listening to community concerns. Um, I found that kind of bizarre. You know, and, and it's it's I'm really glad you mentioned this because honestly, dealing with the appointed members of government, I found much more not only engaging, mm. but also fun. Mm. When you get a when you get a response from a lieutenant governor, they're great big seals on them, <laughs> and they just look really cool as a letter and as a and as a bit of a wall map. They just kind of look a bit cool. When you engage with the Senate, the Senate is in a very unique position to deal with minority interests and minority groups. Mm-hmm. While I would argue that mental health is not a minority, it's been treated as a minority issue. That it's a it's a sub issue of health, mm-hmm. and I think. Let's be honest. Um, how many people really understand the nuances of the Senate, of lieutenant governors, their role, their responsibility? Because when I wrote them, let's be clear, I wasn't asking the lieutenant governors to create policy. What right. I was asking for was them to use their positions as members of the face of the crown to talk about their own experiences and the experiences of others in their, in their, in their uh, roles as LTGs. With the Senate, I was asking those senators to continue pushing the elected branch of government to get off their hands and do something. So you, you've, I've got to be clear on that. I, it's not that I was writing them saying, I want you to support this bill or this policy, but for the LTGs, I was saying, I want you to have conversation. I want you to sit down and I want you to tell my parents' story. I want you to say that this is not just my mom and dad's story. This is the story of this country. This country has sorely dropped the ball on people like my mom and dad. So I want to be clear on that. What is very interesting though, is that whole idea of not my constituent, not my problem, because that segues into this. The amount of times I heard somebody say, well, just talk to Lloyd, just talk to Mike, just talk to Cam. If this was a Guelph issue, I would have dealt with it solely as a local issue. Right. But this isn't just a Guelph issue. My concerns, my issues are the same as they are in the Arctic Circle versus the East and the West Coast and in the prairies. They're the exact same issue. Though we may talk, look, speak differently, they're the exact same issue. The issue is we have a country that has dropped the ball. No matter the government, no matter the party, we've dropped it big time. So when you talk about and when you bring up the appointed stuff, I'm really glad you did that because it segues into that, that whole idea of not my constituent, not my problem. And I've got responses from senators who had no business responding to me, but they did so because they they recognized that I could understand the position of the Senate and they recognized the reality on the ground, which is this still affects my province. This still ex- this still impacts who I'm supposed to represent. His story is from Guelph, but it could be found in Nova Scotia. It could be found in Newfoundland or Labrador or Alberta. I mean, that's, I think, the really interesting part of that. And honestly, was the most fun because I met the Lieutenant Governor of Saskatchewan based on writing him. He invited me to Saskatchewan and said, if you're ever in town, swing by my house and we can have a chat. And I did that. And, um, and that, you know, it's a cool feather in the cap of doing that because I don't know how many people actually write uh, the LTGs and actually have an understanding of the role they play in the represented in being the representatives of the crown or the Senate for that matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, all this political talk, Noah, it makes, 
uh, what might make people think you, you have an eye to a career in politics. But uh, if you read right through to the end of the book, um, you're thinking about law school. Absolutely. Why law school? Because uh, politics is a really awful game. <laughs> and you've got to be able to lie a little bit. And I don't like lying to people. You'll know from reading the book, Adam, that I'm incredibly blunt, brutally honest in some cases. Um, that's just who I am. And um, I, I think politics doesn't have a place for people like me who, who can't toe the party line. Uh, with regard to law school, though, um, I hope that in the next 20 years, we have a law system and a, and a court system, a judicial system that looks and feels like the society that they're designed to represent. And I'm not just talking about race here or gender, but I'm also talking about those who understand how people who are mentally ill be become those who are uh, having to defend themselves in courts. Mm. And I think it's important to have lawyers who understand those people can enter the court system, but also their children who experienced, uh, whether it be domestic violence or the loss of a parent, how they can end up in the, in the criminal justice system. So I think it's important to have defense attorneys, crown prosecutors, and judges who actually understand the, just the reality of society uh, right. before they go into the court system. When you go in, to the court system, you'll eventually understand the reality on the ground, but to go in with an actual personal experience with it, I think that adds some, some weight and, and can in some ways change the hearts and minds of people you connect with and speak with. Mm -hmm. Not that I disagree with anything you just said about uh, the benefits of taking your firsthand experience into a legal career to help others, but one of the things I will say about politics is we sort of get the system we invest in. And if yep. we're, we're sending as you, as you feel like people who are not representing people and people who can't be honest to Queens park and parliament Hill, um, you know, is it maybe not incumbent on the people demanding rigorous honesty of themselves to demand rigorous honesty of our politicians in return? <laughs> Uh, you may have a point there for me, though. Um, I would say I've done my job in asking for honesty, Fair transparency, enough. and accountability of our of our leaders. It's time that other people start asking the same question. Um, there were a lot of politicians who spoke out of both sides of their mouth, and. Mm. Um, I've called some folks on that and I've, I've made it very clear my position on a, on a lot of issues with this, but I think it can't just be people like me uh, asking about this. It's got to be a collective national interest to clean up our political system because it's a bit messy right now. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it will change, mm. but um, it's a bit messy right now. So, I mean, that's, that's all fair. I just, uh, I did want to get that bit on the record, but before we sort, before I, I, I let you go, there was one scene near the end of the book that I found kind of powerful. Maybe it's from years of watching too many movies, but um, you 
did a, a, a speech somewhere, one of these occasions where you're asked to speak about your life story and about the, the crusade for mental health, you encounter uh, two parents who lost their child. Um, and, you know, the, it, and it was a recent loss. I'm wondering, was that in some way looking into some sort of weird mirror? Because here you are, uh, the, a grown child who was orphaned looking at two parents who, and there's no word for a parent who doesn't have a child anymore. There's no convenient term for it, but I mean, that must, there was some sort of weird alignment there. And, and I, I felt there was, it was sort of very purposeful in terms of one of the last anecdotes you share of the book. And I'm wondering it, how you thought about that moment. Yeah. His name was Dylan. The yeah. Young man who, Dylan's uh, story. Yeah. Who, who took his life. It's unfortunate. I don't, I don't remember his mom and dad's name. Um, I was, I was 18, I believe at the time it was the summer of 2018, I I think. Um, So it's going back quite a ways, four years, but I put that in there, Adam, because I want people to know other names. Mm. You can know my mom's name and I appreciate you knowing her name, but to know that there are the Dylans of the world Mm. that are still dying, that we are still losing to our inept failure to provide the healthcare system that we deserve, I think is an important part to share in this. That young man should be here. And from what I remember, and again, we're going back quite a ways. (laughs) He was about the exact same age as my mom was when she took her life. Mm -hmm. So it was in essence, looking at the mirror. Uh, You're right. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The two individuals who were there, his mom and dad had a little bit of gray and they reminded me of my grandparents and, um, who had lost their daughter. Uh, But I placed that in the section you were talking about because it is so important that we do not forget that there are others that we're still losing. And that was one of the most um, recent examples that I could put a story to and put in my book. And I didn't want the book to be about me. Yes, it's about like it's my life, sure it is. Face but it's is also on the cover. <laughs> I know, I know. But it's but it the 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 story is about mom and dad and about the other moms and dads and the other Dylans of the world that we are continuing to lose. And I never thought I would um be able to put his story in, but it just so happened to work out really well Mm -hmm. uh, to close off the advocacy section of my book uh, part two. And uh, I'm I'm really glad that you brought that up because uh, that mom and dad, and I don't know their names. I don't know where they're from. They left a a significant impression um, on me and uh, I never forgot their son. I can, I can only imagine. Um, But uh, you know, I, I, we, we joke about, you know, it's not about you, even though your face is on the cover, but I mean, it is, we, we do learn through specific examples. And one of the things I'll say is that, you know, and, and you talk about the reasons why you didn't go much into statistics in the book is because, you know, your mom and dad aren't statistics. They're of people. Cor- they're people. Of course they're not. And I think that's where we maybe get this, this wrong sometimes where we talk about how many percentages and how many per year and, and, and all these numbers and um, to, to put names to the numbers is, is really powerful. So. Yeah. And, and in one of my letters, I, 
I wrote, and I forget which order of government I wrote and put this in. I said my parents' names toward the end of my letter. And I said, they mark the closet of names that this country continues to hide Mm -hmm. and not acknowledge that we have lost to this epidemic. I mean, to put it in perspective, we have a a 9-11 every year to suicide in this country, but we don't know their names. And that's a significant disservice. And I wanted to make sure mom and dad, Kent and Leslie and Dylan and others were included and, uh, and talked about uh, in the, in the book. So I'm, I'm really glad that you actually brought him up. Uh, I'm really glad that that uh, impacted you in that way. The whole thing impacted me. It's two, how many, 222 pages of, of occasional heartbreak, um, but also uh, some tremendous hopefulness as well. So I'm glad we got a chance to, to talk about it here. But Noah, I will, I will let you go. And uh, you. I appreciate uh, the book and I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Adam. I appreciate it. And once again, that was Noah Irvine. You can buy a copy of his book, Learning to Live, in person downtown at the bookshelf, Guelph's independent bookstore. Or if you're not into the whole buying things in person thing yet, you can get it through the book's website at learningtolivebook.ca. That is learningtolivebook, all one word, dot C-A. While you're at that site, you can find Noah's blog there, and you can sign up to get regular email updates as well. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you this time next week. And until then, we will see you next time.